Please join us every week for a new episode of Understanding the Human Condition with Dr. James Flowers. Dr. Flowers and his most admired mentors, respected colleagues, and VIP guests will share valuable insight into underlying health causes, conditions, and issues. These in-depth yet approachable episodes are a great resource for both private individuals and industry professionals. Our esteemed host, Dr. James Flowers, is one of the most recognized and respected names in the field of chronic pain, mental health, and substance use disorders, both nationally and internationally. Dr. Flowers is the founder of J. Flowers Health Institute, located in Houston, Texas. For more information about J. Flowers Health Institute and its concierge services, go to jflowershealth.com or dial 713-783-6655. And be sure to mention this podcast. Welcome to Understanding the Human Condition. I'm Robin French, and this is your host, Dr. James Flowers. Thank you, Robin. It's good to be here. I'm so excited to have Heather Hayes today. Our VIP guest. That's right. Yeah. And this is episode six. Um, so I thought I'd start out, if I could, by yep. introducing her with you a little bet. bio here. Heather is the founder and CEO of Heather R. Hayes & Associates. She is a master-level licensed counselor, board-registered interventionist. A veteran of behavioral health field, she has over 30 years' experience working with addictions and other disorders and specializes in the treatment of adolescents, young adults, trauma, brain disorders, complex mental health issues, and a full spectrum of addictive disorders. Known as one of the country's most prominent authorities on these topics, Heather is a coveted speaker and has been published in numerous journals, books, and industry publications. Heather serves as an on-air expert and consultant for CNN, Dr. Oz, and has been featured on all the major networks and as a featured interventionist on A&E's high-profile show, Intervention. Outside of her practice, Heather uses her expertise to give back to her community as a volunteer psychological profiler with the Forsyth County Sheriff's Department hostage negotiation and SWAT team. Heather is currently writing a book, Our Youth Taken Hostage. And so I thought we'd yeah. dive right in and talk about that because I watched a clip yesterday of you. Um, you were speaking with Clay Weaver. I think it was on your website. Yeah. And there were some staggering statistics on there that you were mentioning that 2,500 teenagers a day try a prescription pill for the first time to get high. In fact, one in seven have done so in the last year, and that 60% of them are 15 years or younger, and that our children are more likely to die from an overdose than anything else that we prepare them for in schools. Mm -hmm. We teach fire prevention, how to prepare for a shooter or a terrorist attack, and yet we aren't teaching our families and children about this. So thanks for bringing it to everyone's attention. Yeah. It's something I feel very passionate about. And part of it, too, is I sat through negotiator training. Um, I was approached by my county sheriff department in 2001. And they asked me if I wanted to become part of the team, like the teams now, you know, back then it started incorporating mental health professionals onto the team for when they have hostage callouts. So I sat through negotiations training with the FBI, with some of NYPD's finest. And as I sat there hearing them talk about all the principles of negotiation and terrorism, everything connected mm-hmm. with what yeah. we deal with, with addiction how the brain is taken hostage, how our, our the individuals are taken hostage, how the families are taken hostage and, and almost develop like Stockholm syndrome. Mm-hmm. And I began to wonder and, and really 
think about what we're doing as a society to look at what we propagate and what, you know, the messaging that we're giving with stigma. And it struck me one day, you know, we come in and we teach our children how to, you know, we have tornado drills, right. we have fire drills, we have active shooter drills, and yet our children are more likely to be killed by a drug overdose yeah. than so a fire or a tornado or a terror attack. Not to say we don't need those trainings, of course we do, but what is it in our society that's keeping us from really talking about how one of the biggest terrorists we have is addiction? And it's like we have these little sleeper cells all in our homes. And yet, if we truly had a sleeper cell in our neighborhood, we would be all over it. Mm-hmm. And the media would take over and we would really handle it in a way that I believe we've handled COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Like there yeah. is a huge threat amongst us. Yeah. And yet we have, you know, again, close to 200 people a day dying just from opiate yeah. overdose. Sad. We have our teenagers, our children, exposed at a young age to drugs and alcohol for the first time we know today who are at risk you know we know who's at risk you know we know our statistics for reports to department of child and family services mm-hmm. no trauma is involved we know the genetic component and yet we're not doing a good job of really coming in and educating our parents and our our families and how how do you begin talking to your children about this at the dinner table that's yeah. where it really begins. And is that the intent of the new book, Heather, to get this in the hands of every parent and school in the country? Yeah. Every parent, every school, and the professionals. And to really look at, again, talking about the human condition, yeah. what are our goals for young adults? Like, what do our children need? What are the developmental milestones like connection, socialization, being able to master things to help build their self-esteem? creativity, interaction with the outdoors, um, healthy diet and sleep. Yeah. You know, what are the things that we need to help our teenagers go, you know, grow as children, become healthy teenagers and be able to launch into adulthood so that they come into adulthood knowing like how to make meaning out of life, what their passion is and really define, you know, what's my purpose? That's right. Mm -hmm. Adolescent years, I got sober when I was 21. So what that means is the majority of my addiction was that of a teenager, young adult. Uh And I think back to the times, I mean, the only way I can describe adolescence for me, and I think for a lot of other teenagers out there is what it was just like existential angst. Like my really spending time trying, I was so sensitive trying to sort out like, why is the world like it is? Why is there so much pain? Mm -hmm. Why is there so much hurt? Why are people bad to, you know, mean? Why is there bullying? You know, why am I bullied? Why do I see it? You know, all of those issues coupled with how can there be so much beauty in the world and love and joy? And for me, I was a competitive rider. I've always had my horses. So I had that love in there too, but trying to sort it all out sure. was near impossible. Sure. And so I found, you know, I was just primed at 13 when I had my first drink for my dopamine system to go, you know, ding, ding, ding. I love this. Relax, <laughs> <laughs> sense of well being. Yep. And I went, oh, I'm not shy anymore. I don't feel awkward. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, 
like off to the races. So how do we help our teenagers with that? I mean, it's hard being a teenager. It's hard living in this world. And we now live in a world where, you know, for example, when I was a teenager, I turned on the TV and, you know, the news was, you know, some guy reporting. Right. Now, right. even the exposure that our kids live with, having to turn on the TV and just see, mm-hmm. you know, again, terror attacks live and getting right. on the Internet and the availability of the dark web where you can watch horrific acts happen. I mean, that's traumatizing. Yeah. Right. So it's a different world. I mean, I've often said never in my day did I think that someone was going to walk into the Lovett school where I went and and with a gun and shoot somebody right and to, our children i mean we have active shooter drills for them because it's reality so just amazing it's it's, it's hard the human condition yeah. you know mm-hmm. to me the human condition means how do i make sense out of this world in which i live how do i find meaning mm-hmm. and how do i do it at every level and step of my life mm-hmm. you know how do i as a young adult you know, make sense out of it and, and still not be able to think clearly or have the wisdom. And then how do I trust the adults that, that are telling me and teaching me, you know, that's, that's hard for kids to sometimes find safe people that they trust. And then now at this phase of my life, you know, there comes a point where you're always, I was always looking forward. What's my next career remote? What am I going to do? Then there comes this time now where looking forward going, how many more years, how many, not that I'm planning to, you know, (laughs) you're not going anywhere, (laughs) but there's also that phase that Eric Erickson talked about where you stop and you go, okay, here I am. Yep. You know, now I'm looking back at what I've done in my career. What would I have done differently? What do I wish I hadn't done? How do I resolve that in myself? How do I take what I've got now and, and pass that on? So, right. You know, we're always looking in some direction while taking it a day at a time. Absolutely. Trying to make meaning and, and, and really existential sense out of it all. That's right. Well, and I think that you, Heather, certainly exemplify that in our country in the addiction world as a role model, as a person in long-term recovery, as an interventionist. And, and you just exude that all day long, every day. And so thank you for what you're doing out there. I wanted to ask, so I see a number one New York Times bestseller about to come out. When is your book going to come out, do you think? Well, I had hoped that I would have it depressed now. And yeah. I actually had this whole um, thought process. I mean, I've got like the first manuscripts done. Great. I'm type A. So it's never going to be as good as I want it to be. So there'll come a point where I have to say, quit writing on it. A little bit of that OCD there. A little bit of that OCD, (laughs) a little bit of that perfectionist. My father wrote over, wrote, published over 300 books. So it's kind of in my blood. Um, But I had hoped during COVID, I thought, okay, great. You know, not that we're still in COVID, but we had the big lockdown. I thought, okay, I'm going to work on the book. But, you know, Mm -hmm. I found that lockdown exhausting. (laughs) So I am, um, I'm, I hope to have it out. I would, I would venture to say, hopefully, um, the beginning of next year. Wonderful. I can tell you, one of the other things that I've tried to do recently is to put out a new blog every week. And so there are pieces of the blogs that I put out that have been kind of tests where I've taken a piece of the, of, of my book 
written about it a little bit more and put it out on a blog. So every Sunday, there's a new blog coming out. It's kind of part of my, you know, when you talk about giving meaning, there was a time maybe about 10 years ago, maybe 15, mm-hmm. maybe 20, <laughs> where all of a sudden I realized I was the age of the people that I looked up to right. in my career when I had first started out. I mean, I was studying psychology when I went to treatment and got into recovery. So I just kept going. Right. And so I remember there were many people that I just looked up to. And suddenly I went, you know, I'm kind of that age now and I've been doing it for a long time. And so it, it also brought upon me um, in under the guise of making meaning of my life a drive to also pass on what I've learned over the years. Absolutely. By doing that, by blogs, by, you know, speaking and a big part of that's my book. How can the audience find your blogs every Sunday? So I put them out on social media. Mm -hmm. Then I attach them to my website, but I have a Facebook page, Heather R. Hayes and Associates. I have an Instagram page. um, That's also Heather R. Hayes and Associates. I have a Twitter page, a LinkedIn page. And so every week on Sundays, they'll go out, they go out on there. And then I link them to my website so that people can come and look them to get, look at them if they want to or look things up. Sure. I also put together a packet for communities mm-hmm. to answer a lot of different questions. Over the years, I mean, I've been blessed to have worked with some amazing families um, who've really been my teachers and you know, helped me become really who I am today. And I had some mothers reach out to me and say, will you help us like put together uh, questions, you know, answers to questions like, well, why do we tell our kids they can't smoke marijuana? Or why is it bad for a teenager to put alcohol and drugs on top of an immature undeveloped brain? Or, you know, why is it that we have to now, like why are grandparents smoking pot? (laughs) Exactly, yeah. So I put together sort of a community packet, too, that people can take to their communities to have to their places of worship, wherever, that answer a lot of these questions that parents will often ask. And I saw that last night that Forsyth County lit the county town square, I'm guessing, uh, in purple for Overdose Awareness Month. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I'm sure you had something to do with that. Absolutely. This is the fourth year where I've gone to the county commissioners and asked them to um, declare a proclamation of the 31st, August 31st being International Overdose Awareness Day. And I've done that in conjunction. There's some mothers here. I mean, I really think that the changes that we're seeing today Uh in government and legislation and ending stigma are coming from the mothers and family members who have lost children to addiction or have children who are addicted. I mean, those are really our warriors. And so we have a group of mothers here who've also lost their children to addiction. So together, my county is incredible. We do a lot of education, but we have a mother that put together uh, and has for the last four years a teacup vigil. So they're teacups that have candles in them and they're attached to family members from all over the country can write to her and she'll have a teacup with their name on it and their birth date and the day they left this world and then so um, pictures of them. It, it's just so moving. Yeah. And part of that, our commissioners mm. 
agreed to light up our our downtown in purple. So. Yeah. You know, my sister died of a, a both a drug overdose and then fell the, the night she overdosed off of a building, off of an eight-story building. And I wish that my mother so yeah. much had had someone like you to reach out and find help. What advice are you, would you give moms and dads and families when when they have a child with addiction and they're seeking, you and I have worked together with uh, as an interventionist and a provider before, but I really want the audience to hear about Heather R. Hayes and Associates and what you offer really the world in, in seeking treatment and how to talk to their loved ones about either an intervention or what, what you do with parents. Absolutely. Well, first off, we live in a world today where it's so much more dangerous. I mean, there's so many family members where their children didn't even have addiction, mm -hmm. but they reach out and they take one fake Xanax that's got fentanyl in it, or they do cocaine for the first time and it's got fentanyl in it. So the deaths are, I mean, it's just so painful to see how many kids that we're losing. So I don't think that there's room to really guess. I mean, there was a time where we might give the advice, I might've given the advice, gather more information, let's see what's happening. But I believe today in this climate with all the overdoses, that if you suspect there's a problem with your child, if you think that they're using, if you find drugs, mm -hmm. you need to act and act quickly and seriously. And again, part of that begins with learning how to talk to your children so that they understand that this is a disease and that there is no disgrace in having this illness. That's right. Mm -hmm. So parents have got to educate themselves. They've got to get beyond the whole, not my kid, it's somebody else's kid and realize that it happens to your, mm -hmm. you know, it can be your kid. That's and true. to really understand how to, you know, we need to help educate the communities on what to look for. Right. But when parents begin to suspect, don't guess, don't say, I don't think it's that bad. I've only seen it one time. Get to a professional, get a good evaluation, hair testing, drug testing. There are ways that we can really look and see, you know, how, how, how advanced are things. That's right. Mm -hmm. so when someone calls us, there are a lot of different ways that we'll work together. Um, I, I feel like, you know, this part of my career, I'm really at a place where I'm offering the families I work with the best of everything that I can pull together in all my years of knowledge of what we need to really help support a family with mental health or addiction issues. Absolutely. Some families come to us and they're ready to do an intervention. And again, we talk about the different styles of intervention. We talk about, again, my philosophy that it it's not an ambush. It's not a dirty laundry list of everything that's wrong. We want to come in and really speak to everything that's right about that person, why they're a valuable family member, why we as, as an entire family need to do our own work to help support. And that's the message that our identified patient is not just the person with the mental health issue or the addiction. Our identified patient is the entire family system mm -hmm. and that everyone's got work to do and learning to do. And some families will come in and do the intervention first. We work with families for a minimum of six months. Mm -hmm. I have marriage and family therapists on my staff that do nothing but work with the family during this time while supporting them while they're also getting the family program and other things that are offered by treatment. We have some families that come in and they're not quite ready. So we begin that family work ahead of time. 
and get them more empowered, get them making different decisions, handling, you know, the family dynamics differently. So sometimes we end up coming in and doing an intervention and sometimes by the family changing and shifting their loved one ends up going and getting help That's right. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it, it's beautiful. And then we try and come in and, you know, we also offer a lot of other services to help families. You know, I developed a model of adolescent transport. That's very uh, trauma informed. It was important for me working with adolescents through a majority of my career to not come in and have adolescents snatched out of bed in the middle of the night and sent off while the parents aren't at home. You know, for us to really, we're going to come in and say the whole family system needs to do their work. You don't want to begin that by having parents say, take my kid and go fix him. You know, Mm -hmm. know, we sit down, we have the family talk about everything they love about their loved one. Safety measures are still in place so they can't run, but really here's why we made this decision. So they get to treatment in a way that's safe, respectful, and can be as untraumatic as possible. So, you know, you and I both know so many families that have, that have had someone come in in the middle of the night and take their child and put them in a van and take them off to treatment. And just as you were speaking, thinking back, I can think of eight or 10 or 12 families that I've worked with but unfortunately, that's the way they did it. And I've never really seen it work successfully. Right. I just never have. So I'm so glad that you you developed this new, uh, not new technique, but this technique that you've been using and share that. I hope part of that's in your book, too. <laughs> it is. Why don't you talk just a little bit, if you don't mind, uh, Heather, about your own journey. When you said you were you you got sober when you were, when you were 21. How did that mm-hmm. happen? What made what was the impetus for that? And and what was that journey like for you? So, um, gosh, so I grew up in a family that was very, um, I mean, I have to start there. I mean, I think like, I think the ground was set for me before I even, you know, was born. Right. Yeah. Came in and I was born in a family where I had, you know, a father who had grown up on tobacco road and a mother who grew up in the aristocratic South. Right. So they get married. Yeah. And, um, you know, my father, hardworking scholarship was a Fulbright scholar over in Scotland, Princeton graduate. Um, but his roots, you know, sure. his work was That's also right. you know, where he had come from. So had a lot of really mixed messages growing up. Uh-huh. Um, there was a lot of uh, my parents divorced and remarried each other three times. Uh-huh. So it was a little bit chaotic. Yeah. Mine did twice, by the way. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, you don't hear that that often. Yeah. But, um, and I had rheumatic fever as a child. Yeah. So there was a whole year of my younger life where I was in bed and there was all this drama around, don't get out of bed or you're going to get heart damage and die. Oh, yeah, <laughs> sure. You know, and so my mom would come in the room and I'd be jumping on the bed and she'd freak out and I'd go, you just said I couldn't get out of the bed. Right. I'm still in the bed, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. so trying to, you know, tame all that energy. But, uh, again, adolescence was, was hard. And as soon as I hit adolescence, you know, puberty and I was awkward, I was shy. And the first time I had that drink, I suddenly wasn't anymore. And I said, I will do this as much as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. And it quickly escalated. I mean, I went to, um, one of the best, I went to some of the best private schools in the South. 
Um, I was asked not to return to some of the best <laughs> schools in the South and then transferred to some of the other. There were a lot of red flags along the way sure. that I was a teenager in distress. And I went off to the University of Georgia. I actually ran away from home. I mm-hmm. ran away from home when I was a kid. And I can understand, you know, this is part of why I think that tough love piece, you know, kick them out of the house. Sometimes it works great and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Like I, you know, was gone for six months and they held on to, I'm not going to come get, they didn't kick me out. I'm like, I'll, goodbye. I'm, I'm leaving. Yep. And so, right. Resilient. And I lived on my own and I, you know, did what I needed to do. And so I wasn't coming back like mm-hmm. that didn't work right. you know, for me. Um, but anyway, I did. What got me back is that somehow inside I knew I wanted to go to college. So mm-hmm. I came back and said, you know, I'll go to, I'll, 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 I'll act right or behave. Sure. So it sent me to University of Georgia, which was a disaster. I mean, I went to the wrong class for the first half of the semester, not much. <laughs> yeah, you know, the guy, the professor handed out the exam and I went up and corrected him in my helpful way to let him know he the wrong number on it. Of course he was he like, did. He was like, this is, I know where I'm at. I think they're confused. So I got a, a D in the class. He added me to an F in the one I didn't go to. It, you know, it was just right. a car wrecks, blackouts, you know, but for me, the biggest thing I believe as a woman mm-hmm. in particular was that loss of, you know, I didn't get arrested. Mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, I didn't, you know, I had bad grades. Mm-hmm it was the internal, like the loss of myself and my self-esteem. And somewhere in there, I knew that my life was not to be what it was. It wasn't to be, I'm going to fail out of school. I'm going to stay high all the time. And my tolerance level was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, my daily dose was, I would drink a quart of vodka over the course of the day. I would take three or four hits of speed in the morning to get going smoke pot all day again the day started about four in the sure. afternoon <laughs> right. but you know it would take like eight or ten quaaludes do three or four grams of cocaine i mean this was all in a day right so how and i was and i had always been super 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 thin just i'd always had this fast metabolism so you know in hindsight i don't know how i didn't right for divine intervention didn't ever dose and die. But I reached out and I asked, um, there were a few times where I'd kind of asked for help and it had fallen on deaf ears and somehow some grace I had seen, I'd been, my parents had taken me to therapists since I was 12 saying what's wrong with her. Mm -hmm. And there was this one guy that I kind of liked that I went to go see. That was the agreement when I had run away from home and was going to come back. And so little did I know he was in recovery. Wow. So I, one day, that was my third year of school, I said to my friends as I was getting sick, throwing up, drunk, that's it, I'm going to rehab tomorrow. And they told me to go sleep it off. And I picked up the phone and called them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the rest is all she wrote, history. Now, now we're going to have a New York Times bestseller, I feel, mm-hmm. next year. You're paying it forward. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So how does someone reach you um, uh, and how does someone reach Heather Hayes and Associates when they need help? Probably the best way to reach would be just to go to the website, which is www.heatherhayes.com. Yep. 
um, and all the information's on there. And the, there's, we have an 800 number, my team, we take turns. You know, for me, my self-care is important. The self-care of my team is important. Mm -hmm. um, it's an easy burnout position being on sure. the front line. So we try and take turns with who answers that phone. But when you call that 800 number, um, you'll either, it'll either be answered by one of my team or you'll get a call back right away if they're on the phone with another family, so. And I'll tell you what, I've called that number many times and they answer on the first ring, <laughs> always. Mm -hmm. And they return calls right away if they're not able to. And, and I've awesome. certainly enjoyed working with you over the years, Heather, and I'm so honored to have you on our podcast today. Thank and you. everyone reach out to, to Heather R. Hayes and Associates and uh, Georgia. It's an amazing, amazing uh, opportunity for you guys to hear Heather's story, buy her book when it comes out early yes. next year. And thank you for everything that you do. Thank, Thank you, you for, for everything you do, too. What you do is so important in helping families get the right appropriate care for their loved ones because it takes a lot for someone yeah, to reach right. out, go through that process. And then if they end up in the wrong place because they didn't have the right diagnosis, right. it's so discouraging for families. Yeah, you are exactly right. Thank you, Heather, so much. Thank you. Yeah. And Dr. Flowers, how do they reach the J. Flowers Health Institute? I think the easiest way, just like Heather said, is www.jflowershealth.com. Our phone number is 713-783-6655, but that website has lots of information on it. So check out both uh, Heather Hayes' website, our website. We're both here to answer questions for you guys anytime. So Heather, thanks, and I hope to see you, you post COVID very, very soon. Thank hope you. To see you soon. Thank yeah. you. Take good care. Bye. Hi, you too. Bye-bye. Yeah. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome.